Friends, just before we start with today's episode, a quick courtesy reminder on two things. Uh, this is for those of you listening to this podcast in real time. Number one, we have a free masterclass on communication techniques coming up September 15th. You can register at stevecuswords.com for that. Number two, our Capable Life membership price is increasing on September 15th. It's going from $28 a month to $36 a month. If you've been thinking about joining, you're going to do best if you join before September 15th because then you lock in your price for the life of your membership. Unlike other memberships, once you've been a member for a year on Capable Life, you keep access to any module you've completed. We really want to equip you long-term where you can use this as a reference library after you're done paying. So www.capablelife.me to join the membership or stevecuswords.com to sign up for the upcoming Communication Masterclass. And now today's show. I remember the first day of class, Kiptalaya Lolia, our professor, he looked at our diverse classroom. We were not all white, but we were majority white. And he looked at us as a black man and he said, uh, I tell you what you don't need is another book written by a white guy. And we all kind of chuckled. And then he took us on a year-long journey of liberation theology, womanist theology, with the simple and profound idea that the majority of the Bible was written from the margins of society. The majority of the Bible was written from oppression. Therefore, while European and white and white-centric theology is often concerned with orthodoxy, right thinking, marginal theology, liberation theology, womanist theology is interested in right action, orthopraxy. And even though I'm a white guy at the center of power, boy, did that resonate with me. So we started in Columbia with the Boff brothers, and then we did James Cone. We did Dolores Williams, and I couldn't believe that there was this black female theology that was so powerful. We went to um, Kazuke Kuyama, that wonderful Japanese theologian, water buffalo theology, and uh, we did some Native American theology. Our class ended, but for me it just began, and I went back to my little New Testament library in East Tennessee of all places, and wouldn't you know it, there were Aboriginal theology books written by Dr. Anne Patel Gray, my guest today. Uh, Dr. Patel Gray is the first Aboriginal to get a PhD from the University of Sydney. She, uh, Sydney. she has can, given her life to helping Aboriginal people and white people, not just in Australia, but all around the world, understand colonial theology, uh, theology written from the margins. What I remember when I read The Great White Flood, a provocative book for me, who obviously was born and raised in Australia, was when Anne said to me in this book, she said, it's the moral obligation, and, and Anne, I'm paraphrasing because it was 20-plus years ago, it's the moral obligation of every Aboriginal Christian to go to every white church and preach the gospel because they don't have it. How's that for a start? And I thought to myself, well, what are we missing? And Anne said, uh, the gospel is Jesus died so you don't have to oppress people anymore. You're free from having to oppress. And Jesus died, you do not have to own property anymore. And I thought, boy, that sounds way more like Jesus than what I teach. And so uh, I'm probably one of the few white uh, American pastors, obviously I'm an Aussie, but I pastor in America, that quotes Anne regularly from the pulpit in my very suburban Colorado church. Anne, what a privilege to have you on the show. It's not even 5 a.m. where you are. Thank you so much for getting up early and joining me on the show. Oh, you're welcome, Steve. It's such a pleasure to have this opportunity. Well, obviously, I'm Aussie, you're Aussie, we have a number of Aussies, but our predominant audience is American and European, and then, of course, we've got some friends all over the world as well. But some people may not be aware of something uh, called the Stolen Generation. All of us mm. Australians know what it is. I wonder if we could begin by you just explaining what that is. Mm. Well, as a part of um, colonialism and um a driven policy by the federal government in Australia was to uh, crush and divide our culture and um, and our humanity. And the one way that they did that, um, as the colonists, white colonists, come to this country, they of course raped our women and our, ch our um, children. And uh, as a result of that, a lot of um, you know uh, what they would term as half caste children. Uh, were born 
which was to the English woman a very much an embarrassment to their, um, you know, uh, how would you say, purity and um, their idea of what um, uh, a society should look like. And uh, so it, in order to hide that shame, they brought about a, a process and a policy of taking those children. Now, uh, Canadian um, Indians certainly have um, received the same sort of um, impact in, and policies. And, uh, and I think it happened somewhat um, in the US too with the uh, Native Americans there in um, some areas where children were taken and then um, confined to residential um, institutions, uh, never to see their family again and, um, and their families never to see them. And they basically were confined to um, a life of servitude where culture was eliminated from all elements of their learning. They only learned to speak English. They only had a second and third grade education. And their purpose was purely to serve and be servant, uh, servants to um, the uh, colonial society. And that happened, uh, started happening very early in the 1900s and continues. Even today now, we're still saying we've got a second wave of um, stolen generation happening as a result of um, child protection and child safety who are removing our children at an alarming rate from their families and communities, as well as the high incarceration of our youth in youth detentions. And, uh, you know, when you consider we're only 3% of the population, yet 95% of incarcerations are First Nation children. And uh, also, um, what is it? I think it's around 89% uh, of children taken are uh, First Nation children. So it's a very high statistic and uh, it's a way of committing cultural genocide and continuation of the, um, the colonial rule. Yeah, so when you say that 89% of, of children removed from a home of First Nation kids, you're talking about the classic government social services child welfare system is mm -hmm. overwhelmingly removing First Nation kids yes. from existing homes and putting them in some kind of a white-based foster system or something like that. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so I, I remember I was born in 1971 and I don't think I learned about the stolen generation as a white person until mm. sometime in the 1990s. I was in my mm. 20s. And one of the ways I learned about it is my peers in the 90s, ab my Aboriginal and First Nation peers were looking for their family of origin. So yeah. there were people in their 20s and 30s when I was in my 20s who were suddenly on the hunt to find their roots and their heritage which particularly for an Aboriginal person is, is particularly keen, is it not, Anne, to understand your family and community? Yeah, look, you know, um, if we want to talk theologically about it, you know, here we have a race of people, one of the oldest living cultures in the world. And, you know, through our ancestry, we've had a relationship with the Creator for over 60,000 years. And that relationship is the basis on which we form our identity. Uh, God created us as who we are, people of land. We are connected, bound to the land. We have spiritual connection. Our identity is also formed from this land that is bestowed upon us to care for. And uh, it also defines uh, the significant relationship we have with the Creator and our laws that come from the Creator through our ancestors. So identity is very much uh, um, a, a strength, uh, an important factor of who we are. And knowing what country you come from, what area of this vast country that you belong where your ancestors were, where the Creator gave you the songs to sing your country um, and where Mother Earth nurtures you, that is very, very um, significant aspect of our identity. And to have that taken leaves us as empty vessels. And, you know, we have probably one of the highest suicide rates in the world amongst our young people 
because of this very factor and, um, and the systemic racism, of course, that we encounter on a daily basis. So it's pretty uh, damning when you begin to look at some of these aspects, um, not only from a political standpoint, but also from a church and a Christian standpoint um, as to, you know, the, the complicity of the church being involved in such a process and policies as well. Yeah, and then, Anne, your own faith journey, like First Nations is a monotheistic culture. Uh, lots of talk about the creator, you know, one one creator. Were you raised in a Christian culture? Did you come to understand Jesus in a fresh way? What was that like for you as a kid or as a teenager? Look, I was raised in a, a Christian home and, uh, you know, we were one of the few black people or the only black people in, in the church that I grew up in. And um, very rarely did I ever meet any other Aboriginal Christians um, in the church, but uh, I grew up in that context, but my mother was fiercely Aboriginal and um, very proud of her culture and her heritage. And it was the Bible and my Christian understanding became strong in understanding our relationship with the Creator through our culture. Um, I couldn't relate to a white interpretation of biblical narratives um, because it was full of hypocrisy. You know, they, they'd get up and preach about the um, Good Samaritan on a Sunday and yet, you know, I would challenge them and say, how can you preach about being a Good Samaritan when you would step over my people in the gutter and kick them to the side, you know? Uh, so I just kept seeing all of this hypocrisy and, and struggled with that because our faith is how we live. It is not something we put on on a Sunday. It is our day, day-to-day -day life existence. And that, to me, um, you know, formed how I embraced my faith and, and Christianity and why I was driven, I, I feel, called by God to challenge people uh, around an, an interpretation that would deny someone else their humanity and, um, and, and would justify colonialism, theft, oppression, greed and, you know, all manner of horrors when that is so far from the God that I know. Yeah. So I'd like to explore this a little bit with you, Anne, because as we were chatting before we hit record, the one of the overall themes that we're chasing this season is the nature of power. And we're going to look mm -hmm. at it several ways. We're going to look at how our chronic anxiety keeps us oppressed. But part of why mm -hmm. I was excited to have you on the show is that's one of your specialties is looking at how people wield power the difference between power that liberates and power that oppresses where i'd like to start is you're a kid in this white centric church kids as a general rule i mean this is a blanket statement but we just don't have much power so we go to church and but at some point we we come to our senses and we say wait a minute what's being presented from the pulpit is incongruent with my experience or what I think is true. And you'd already mentioned your mum was helping you with that. But do you have a, was this like a sneaking suspicion for you? Or did you have kind of a, a clear moment of clarity where you're like, oh, this is wrong. I have to do something about this. Look, I think as a young child, you know, growing up in a very racist society, I was um, very introverted and, um, you know, a social, uh, how would you say, um, watcher, if you want to put it that way, hmm. watching people, watching what they say, and just listening um, on the sidelines. And I began to realise as I was coming into um, becoming a teenager, the conflict between what people said and what they did were two vast um, oppositions. And um, as I began to look at that, and uh, as I grew in my faith, I felt compelled to 
stand up. I, I just felt God needed to be liberated because everyone had placed, the colonial system had placed their own shackles on the creator that, you know, limited the creator's ability to be divine uh, in our context and to basically have power to transform humanity, societies, you know, creation. And um, I, I just felt that, uh, you know, someone needed to champion God um, and, <laughs> and save God from this, you know, colonial context of imprisonment. Uh, and justification for colonial greed, um, empire, and everything else that drove, uh, that drove, um, you know, the, con uh, the the colonial conquest around the globe. First Nations people, and um, you know, would know, <clears throat> would embrace what I've got to say because that would be a lot of their experiences as well. And you know, I, I want our people, and I want all people to be able to speak about a God that empowers them, that somehow gives strength, um, gives peace, but also gives comfort uh, as we struggle through our daily lives. Um, and, you know, to me, God is my source of strength. And when I consider some of the things that I have experienced in the church, uh, and in society, it's pretty horrific because, as I said, the racism here is so systemic and yet Australia forever wants to point to the US as being the racist country, yet they don't want to look at their own racism and, uh, and what they've done in this country uh, and what they continue to do because nothing much has changed. There is great hope at the moment with the new government that, you know, things will change here um, we're one of the few um, First Nations people who don't have a treaty and uh, it's certainly uh, an aspect that we've been fighting for for a long, long time is to gain um, a balance of power and, and uh, to be able to say we've never ceded sovereignty in this country. We have continued to fight for our sovereignty and, um, you know, and the only way that we can be embraced into this society um, that is based on a colonial rule is for us to have, um, you know, what do you call it? A, um, I'm trying to think of the word now. My brain's just gone off on me. Um, it's early. Yeah, um, to basically, um, you know, start with a clean slate and um, get rid of colonial structures and rules and our ties to the Commonwealth and start again. And this time, perhaps we could start um, on, a, on a basis of justice where First Nations people are recognised and are given a treaty and uh, a seat at the table as well as a right to participate in economic ventures and future of this country. Yeah. So one of the things you've mentioned several times is this idea of systemic racism. Mm. And I, I think one of the limits of white theology has been, I, I, I think it's still this way, I'd be interested in your, your take, it's such an individualistic understanding, uh, mm. me and Jesus, you know. Um, but but grappling, and so what happens, I think, with white people is we say, well, but I'm not racist, and, and because we're blind to it. So I remember when I was reading your book, one of the things that I think God really took me to town for was in Perth, the Swan Brewery. It was the biggest brewery in Australia. Alan Bond owned it right on the river, prime property. And when I was a teenager, the local Aboriginal tribe uh, wanted it, wanted it back. And as teenagers, we thought that was a great joke, uh, as mm -hmm. white teenagers, uh, because a lot of the uh, First Nations people in our area were struggling with uh, significant alcoholism. Mm -hmm. And so in our simplistic, racist, groupthink way, we just connected those two ideas without any understanding of the history of white and First Nations and rum uh, things like that, 
and then the idea that these were actually sacred burial grounds you've already told us about the importance of place which for me as a white person is not a natural thing and I, when I was reading your book in seminary, this would have been, and I, I guess this was 1998 or 99. It wasn't that long after you wrote it. I think it released in, was it 95? 95, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it was a fairly new work. Um, that was, I think, where God made it much more personal for me to have to grapple with my own bias. Mm. Um, so I was wondering your initial take on that, and then I wanted to move us kind of into individual bias and how we can get a bit more perspective or break free of it. What's your take on the story I told, for example? It's probably a very common one you hear. Yeah, um, look, let me put it into context. I mean, you know, when we talk about uh, colonial theology and, and colonial interpretation, biblical interpretations that are enshrined in text today, um, as a child, uh, adolescent at um, church, being the only black child, uh, in my group in Sunday school and having a white, um, you know, teacher, uh, Sunday school teacher, teaching us about the curse of ham and why as, a, as, a, as black people around the world, why we are to be uh, slaves because God punished us as a race of people. And, you know, I was devastated to sit and hear this teacher. If, if the, I, I prayed for the ground to open up and swallow me because I was just absolutely devastated, ashamed, horrified that my God had condemned me to a life of servitude and slavery because of Ham. And to me, it should have been um, uh, Moses that was uh, condemned um, simply because, you know, his drunkenness and, and his nakedness, um, you know, why wasn't he punished? And um, so I, I couldn't grapple with that. I remember running out at the end and, and, and you know, running to mum and, and just being absolutely inconceivable, you know, traumatised and crying. And my mum said to go and wait at the car and I, she came out because she was just talking to the medicine, come out as soon as she'd finished. And we went home and, you know, she asked me what had happened and I told her and she just looked at me and she said, child, daughter, you are created in the image of God. Do not let anyone take that from you. You are a child of the creator and God created you this way. But I said, mum, why was I born black if I'm to be cursed? I did nothing wrong. And mum said, that is incorrect. You're not a cursed child. That is a racist interpretation of that text. And she said, as you grow older, you'll learn more about how the Bible has been misinterpreted. Mm. And, and I did. And, you know, that trauma stayed with me all my life. And it made me reflect on how the Bible is used as a weapon uh, as a tool to destroy, to take away someone's humanity, to deny them access and a seat at the table there and to exclude them from the family of God. And, you know, we've got to constantly take people back to the fact that we are all created in the image of God so we all have value, we all have worth, we are beautiful. Um, and, you know, and I thank God that there is cultural diversity, you know, and, and racial diversity, because God, it'd be boring if we all look the same. But beyond that, that to me was the beginning of that journey around 
you know, cultural bias that exists within all of us. It's it's not just a white disease. It is belongs to all of us. However, because of the power that is retained by white society, they have more of an opportunity to hone their weapon against others because they have control of the power base, the governments, the churches, and therefore we see a lot more of it. You know, to me, the church and Christians should be the people that wield the sword of righteousness to combat all forms of discrimination. And yet we are the perpetrators of that discrimination in a lot of cases, which is damning on our um, theology, our faith, and who we are as a people. You know, because God calls us to serve um, his will. Now, in the call to serve and in the call of being saved, we are, God gives uh, grace to us and uh, extends the grace. And through that, that our sins are washed away because none of us are perfect. So why is it that we all of a sudden become righteous, that we then can judge and condemn another? Do we forget of our sin? Do we forget that God extended the grace to us? And that grace that is given to us comes at a cost to serve God's will, not our own will, not our own greed, our selfishness, our cultural biases, our justifications. It is there to serve God's will. And uh, and I think we tend to forget that in some aspects that, you know, um, as we're going about our life, we get caught up into the social realm, I don't know, of influences, you know, I've got to keep up with the Joneses, I want what everybody else has and, you know, I want wealth and privilege. When that's not the important aspects, oh, it'd be nice to have money, yeah, it'd be lovely, but that's not what defines me. What defines me is my faith and in my integrity and how I serve and obey the will of God, that's more important to me. So, you know, people like yourself, you know, when you look at your life and you may have some shortcomings in that life, you may, you may have made, you know, wrong decisions or thought about, you know, things in a, in a culturally biased way. Well, when you realise that, embrace that moment because that's the learning moment. That's when your transformation begins is when we can look inside ourselves and see those biases clearly. Can God begin the work that needs to happen inside us to be make us a new creation? I mean, you know, when we look at the story of Saul and the transformation on the road to Damascus, you know, that's what we all should be looking for, how we can be transformed and how God can work in us not pay lip service to it, but in genuine transformation. Because, you know, your neighbour, regardless of colour, is your brother and sister in Christ. And, you know, we give lip service to it, but we don't really embrace it. And, um, you know, there's horrific things happening in, in the uh, United States that we see. And uh, the racism and, you know, the... the, the Poverty and, um, you know, everybody at the moment, I think, in every country is really struggling with COVID and, um, and the effects of that on our economic um, future and sustainability. And people are suffering um, significantly. And, you know, can we not even take the time to see each other's humanity in the suffering and uh, extend grace to each other? And uh, for those that have greater wealth, can we not share that wealth with those less fortunate? And, um, you know, when I think about how we begin to transform a nation, we begin by you and me and the position and the actions that we take. And um, quite often, you know, love is a, is a powerful tool. And um, to extend that to a stranger 
has a significant um, impact and effects on their lives and also on our lives. Yeah. I'm just listening to you, Anne, and, and what you're sharing and the way you're sharing it. You have a, a prophetic, like powerful force about the way you talk. And as I've interviewed in the past, people who see things clearly that the rest of us don't see, it, it costs them to communicate that. Like it's costly to you, I would imagine, to step into a space and speak what's true and either have a blindness uh, as the reaction or a hostility as the reaction. I'm wondering if you might be willing just to give us a little insight into what that's like for you. Obviously, you've been doing this a long time, but maybe mm -hmm. in those early days when you first started having these conversations, you are maybe the minority in the room mm -hmm. and that has its own anxiety in, in my experience. Uh, when you're you know, maybe the only black person or black woman or there's, there's more white than black, all of that, that's where we get into my field of chronic anxiety. All of that costs, takes more energy. Um, mm -hmm. As I've listened to people of color, they'll tell me that they have to shape shift. They actually work to, to make my experience of them palatable rather than just being free to be human. I just yeah. wanted to tee up just getting inside your head and your heart on uh, how do you, um, what does it cost you and how do you stay resilient in that cause? Look, you know, uh, I think it gets worse as you get older um, because you, you know, especially when you dedicate your life to serving others and trying to, um, you know, preach the gospel, so to speak, uh, to transform a nation. It's cost me a lot. Um, I'm marginalised, um, you know, um, my voice, as you call prophetic, is, is one that a lot of people would like to silence um, because they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear facts. They don't want to hear truth. We've got a process here where we're talking about, you know, speaking truth into situations now and truth-telling. And, you know, gosh, I think we all could do with a little bit of truth-telling uh, on a daily basis um, around, you know, our context and um, you know the one thing that I find very difficult is you know I rather have the, the, the person who is conservative to stand up and say I don't agree with you because I have found that I can uh, debate a conservative and quite often through debate transform their way of thinking and change them. It's the liberal I'm more scared of, the one that wants to be on my side that says, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, we agree with you. That's the person I'm, I'm more fearful of uh, simply because they're more dangerous to me because they'll say one thing and then do something completely opposite behind my back and quite often will knife you. So, you know, um, I've learned that over the years. I've also learned, you know, over the years, I've had some incredible mentors and, and champions from uh, the US who are uh, African-American people who have walked with me, Native American people who have walked with me uh, and Latin American uh, people and uh, who have been incredible allies and supporters of uh, my work and who have encouraged me, who have uh, been my confidants, who have, you know, uh, been there for me because, you know, being a lone voice, it's, it's very difficult. And um, sadly, you know, I said to someone the other day, you know, I don't do this just to be controversial. Right. I'm, yeah. This God has called me. And yeah, you I'm don't responding. feel controversial as, as yeah. you're seeing things that doesn't feel controversial to you. It feels normal, right? That's the, yeah. that's the, that's the confusion or the dissonance that happens. Yeah. And, and, you know, I just, uh, basically, you know, uh, some people don't appreciate, um, directness and people speaking truth into situations. They find you to be, you know, confrontational, aggressive, and quite often I'll get labelled angry, you know, or you angry woman. And I said, why is it that my assertiveness is always interpreted as anger when I'm just being assertive and, and, and 
passionate about the topic, you know. And yet, as a black woman, it's it's always oh, she's an angry black woman. She's you know always angry about something. And anger's got nothing to do with it. It's 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 about compassion. It's about commitment. It's about passion. It's you know um, trying to enthuse and motivate people to want to begin this journey because it is a journey. It's not something that. Happens in an instant. It's a, a long process, and um, you know. And I want people to be on that journey with me, um, to share from their context what they're seeing, and to be a part of the transformation. You know um, that we all should be striving for to see, you know, <clears throat> God's reality transformed into our society, uh, where we become more. Uh, compassionate and and more loving towards one another rather than hateful. Mm. I've got two more questions and then we'll um, do the trademarked gauntlet of anxiety questions uh. to wrap up. But um, one of them, Anne, is we're talking about the nature of power and helping our listeners notice when power is coming from above and oppressing, coming on top mm. of. It's very clear in the New Testament, the Roman Empire only knew one kind of power, and that's oppressive power. Mm -hmm. I think this whole interview, that's what you've been sharing with us, is colonialism fundamentally is uh, power wielded improperly. Yeah. Um, versus I think true gospel divine power um, of the Creator comes from underneath mm -hmm. and, and liberates or releases us. Um, so here's my question. What signs are you looking for in somebody that show that person's free, whether it's a First Nations person or a white person, like if I'm in the chains of colonial theology or colonialism, what are some of the signs you're looking for in me or a brother or sister where you're like, there's a person who's actually been liberated, they're actually free from what uh, has them in their grip. I'd be curious your take on that. Look, uh, that the, what I look for is um, <clears throat> simple. Someone who's calling out the the sin, someone who's prepared to name, uh, whether it be from a non-indigenous perspective, name the sins of their uh, people. People like you know, I always say to the generation today, you are inheritors of a colonial rule and power. Now, what you do with that, whether you say, I didn't do that, I didn't do this, and I wasn't the one, you know, uh, you've inherited what your people have done. You've inherited wealth, privilege, power, um, you know, and, and the colonial structures that continue to marginalise and oppress people. It's when I can see these people identify this and call it out and say this needs to change that's when i find that person is on the road for myself for uh, non uh, for aboriginal people uh first nations people it's when i can see my people stand up with the strength and the courage to name the oppressor to name the systems that deny them uh humanity that deny them uh, um, a share of the economy that deny them power to sit at the table and and uh, to be able to be a part of the decision makers around our destiny and what's going to happen. Those are the things that I look for in people. Um, and I see people quite often struggling that want to be, you know, um, in solidarity with us, that want to walk with us, but don't know how to go about it and, and are frightened to offend us. Mm. And, um, you know, look, the one thing that I encourage people to do is, is to, you know, own your walk. And if your walk is to walk in solidarity with us, then don't be frightened to speak and challenge your people. But don't take our voice and speak for us. Speak for your people around challenging them. I keep asking a lot of academics, you know, when are you guys going to write the textbook around the that defines your wealth and your privilege and how you got it? When are you going to write the textbooks for that? 
because don't talk about my poverty, don't talk about my oppression, talk about you as inheritors of that uh, wealth and privilege. I want to see somebody write the textbook because that's not my story to write, that's your story to write. Um, so hopefully somewhere in the near future I might find an, a non-Indigenous uh, academic who will actually write the book because I think it'll be a bestseller if it is ever written. <laughs> it's a fascinating idea and I think actually that negates my final question because um, part of the challenge, I think, I, I really appreciate your um, concern about the liberal ally who's mm. nodding their head but living an unchanged life. Um, and I do think that's the challenge in, in the American context, as I've had these same conversations in my city with African-American leaders, for example. The question where it gets tricky is like, well, until the white church is paying the price, mm. we're never going to change because the systems are benefiting us. And so the gospel calls us to go against self-interest. It's actually the heart of the gospel. Yeah. But we're so used to... Um, self-interest that we don't recognize it, I think. So I, I guess I will take a shot at this final question is, uh, what can we do that will cost us? So for example, in America, my African-American friend told me, he said, just get up on stage when a black person is unjustly murdered by the police and name their name. Yeah. And, he, and he said, that'll get you in plenty of trouble. And so I started <laughs> doing that in 2014 and it has gotten me in plenty of trouble, mm. but of course, my trouble, and is I get emails and I get heated conversations and then I get to go home. Like, like yeah. my trouble is still, it. no, it's still pretty compartmentalized. Like an email is not going to put my life in danger. So I guess we will just close by saying, what would you ask the predominant white church to do that we're not doing now? Look, you know, I find it fascinating, that question, simply because... You know, when we look at the people who, in particularly in, in, in America, who have challenged and, and somewhat transformed and elevated and highlighted the injustice, when we look at Martin Luther King, when we look at Malcolm X, you know, uh, one uh, Martin Luther King, you know, campaigning for assimilation, Malcolm X uh, campaigning for nationalism, um, when I look at the lives of those two men um, and the cost that it cost them and their family, and then, you know, I look at, um, you know, around the globe, I can't find a white person who's done that except for Dietrich Hon uh, Bonhoeffer, who stood up and, and, you know, fought for the rights of the Jews and was incarcerated and gave his life uh, for his faith and his belief to to dare, dare to dare to stand yeah. for the rights of somebody else. Wouldn't it be fascinating if there were a white person who was prepared to stand and challenge their own people around their damnation of other people and their oppression, their greed, their wealth, their privilege? I'd love to see a white person do that. I really would. I mean, you know, champion the cause for the underdog, for those who are excluded from the table. And perhaps in some ways that's what you're doing in some aspects, Steve, because that's when you take the journey home, when you start naming the sins of your forebearers uh, and the colonial power and the rule that has been taken uh, not given by God, taken um, and justified their horror, horrible acts justified by their biblical interpretation, their Christianity. I'd love to see that non-Indigenous person. And I, I, I keep championing you guys because I want to see somebody stand up. I want to see somebody call your people to accountability and that's when you're going to feel the full force of hatred that's when you're going to feel the full force of the cross that you're going to carry um, because you know us black people have been carrying that cross for too long for white sin and it's time that it was laid firmly back on the shoulders of the white race to say 
we've done wrong and what we've done we need to rectify and uh, we need to submit to the yoke of God and uh, repent and to pay uh, retribution, you know, uh, restitution, I should say, not retribution, restitution uh, to those that we have wronged. And, um, you know, maybe we might see a different world altogether if that happens. I'm, I'm thinking right now of the one of the rules we teach in managing anxiety or managing leadership anxiety is you're trying to figure out who in the group is generating most of the anxiety and who in the group <laughs> is carrying most of the anxiety. But my work, Anne, is usually in groups of five or ten, you know, in these micro groups. And, of course, that happens in families. And, and so in a very practical way, the way it happens in my church is there's always those small handful of difficult people who are socially a bit awkward, uh, who treat people poorly, and there's a few of them, and they generate anxiety for everybody. But what you've just challenged me with, it's going to provoke me for some time, because you're you're sharing that same idea on a macro uh, scale, an entire nation, where what what I'm hearing from you is, as a general rule, the white rule has generated the anxiety, and the black person has carried the anxiety. And what we teach is no one will ever grow if you're always generating and are never carrying it. That's the number one rule. In fact, yep. what, what we teach in our system is if you want to grow in Christ, yep. learn to manage the anxiety you're generating and, yep. and carry it yourself. So I, I, I'm quite provoked. We're, we're going to head to the gauntlet, but what a, what a wonderful ending um, for what you're sharing with us is this simple idea. And I guess if I could just testify, um, the reason I continue to put, put my nose into... Um, theology from the margins is I don't know any other way to discover God who himself is spending most of his time in the margins. You know, obviously in liberation theology, that provocative preferential option uh, idea. And, and so when you talk about how the black person has carried the cross, I think we all are wanting a deeper, more profound encounter with God's freedom and peace but it's not individual. It must be communal. So if, if you are not at peace, how can I be at peace as your brother? So, um, well, I'm going to hand off to you for that because I don't like having the last word. Is there anything you want to say? And then we'll get to the gauntlet. Look, you know, if I could just leave people with uh, words of strength and, and comfort that they can draw upon is, you know, always remember that the Creator is with you. The creator is the source of strength that defines you, the courage that sets you uh, on fire. And, uh, you know, and as the peacemaker, you'll always be challenged. You'll always be seen as, as controversial. But, you know, we've got to, and we call by God to speak truth into situations and to name the sin, if you want to call it that way. And it's time that more and more people did it, not just black people, not oppressed people, not First Nations people, but everyone, uh, because that's where we might rectify our, uh, holes, our society, where we can begin to genuinely care for our neighbour in true, pure love. Well, the shoe is on the other foot as I now inflict upon you the optional <laughs> gauntlet of anxiety questions. These are just questions we, we choose three or four out of our list to ask every guest, and it really helps our listeners feel more human themselves. So our first question is about your family of origin. Um, what I love about First Nations theology is it teaches us the richness of generation-to-generation -generation, um, family traits. So I wonder if you just very briefly name one trait that you've inherited from your family that's a tremendous asset, and then maybe one trait that's been a liability in your life. Hmm. I think one asset uh, that uh, comes from my family, uh, our people, is caring, caring for each other um, and taking the time to care. The one that's been a liability for me is truth-telling. <laughs> 
uh, speaking truth into, uh, you know, situations. Uh, that's been probably my greatest liability, but one I can't help uh, but do because, as I said, people don't want to hear truth. Yeah. Yeah, so the truth-telling is an asset that has cost you tremendously by the sound of it. Yes, okay, okay. Um, I, I think we all struggle with an inner critic, the, the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. Um, I wonder if you might be willing to share, do you have a message in your head that can be a message of condemnation that you have to work mm. on? Yeah, I suppose... Yeah, I suppose there is in some sense of, you know, um, each time when I, you know, deliver a keynote or speak in, in public, I'm constantly asking God's wisdom uh, to be bestowed upon me. Um, and I, I want to bring people closer to God. I don't want to repel them. So I'm constantly critiquing myself around whether I've done, you know, right by God. Uh, whether I have conveyed the message clear enough that enables people to open their heart to receive it. So I, I, I'm a horrible critic. On, I'm heavy on myself on that one as to whether I'm conveying the message correctly because it is not my intent to repel people or to um, have people say things in such a way that people turn off and are no longer listening. Yeah because the intent of what I'm doing is to enable them to listen and to open. Um, so, yeah, always critiquing myself on that one. Mm, great. And then um, one of the things we teach our people to do is to notice the spread of anxiety in a group. Does a story come to mind recently where you have seen people catching each other's anxiety? Oh, gosh, yes. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I, I've been a, a victim of incredible um, abuse uh, in the workplace and I have watched the powers that be generate an anxiety that is in their favour against me. And um, so I've, I've experienced the negative of that um and what it looks like you know it's like a hysteria that kind of festers and grows um and everything about you is vilified you know there's nothing that you can do to save yourself if you can understand because you're not the one controlling the narrative you're the subject of the narrative so it's very disempowering in that sense, um, you know, and people within workforces that have experienced that would know what I'm talking about. And, um, you know, you're, you're disempowered. So, yeah, it's, it's not a good feeling at all. Well, then the final question, I think, becomes the most important question based on what you just said, because just by because of your ethnicity let alone your mm. adult experiences you are acquainted with trauma and you're mm. acquainted with grief mm. and uh what's clinically called acute anxiety which is actually when you're in a life and death situation mm. um and in the scripture we are told that perfect love casts out fear so i wonder if you might share a time when you feel fully and completely loved mm. The sad reality, Steve, I've never experienced that. Not in my lifetime. When you grow up in a society that hates you, that hates the very nature of who you are, um, you don't have that experience. Where on TV you're vilified, you know, where media goes out of their way to denigrate your humanity, your people, your self-worth, where you've got laws that, um, you know, criminalise you and your children. Uh, I can honestly say I've never experienced that kind of love. Um, I, not, not outside, you know, not in humanity, um, because, you know, even my family, we've, we've grown 
grown up with lots of trauma because that's our lived experience of trying to protect one another and, um, you know, mum did her best in that way. But, you know, at the end of the day, we had to venture out on our own uh, to grow up and, and get our own employment so she couldn't protect us all the time. And uh, those systems like churches and schools and education and employment are some of the most horrific places where we experience incredible racism and marginalisation. Um, and as I said, you know, people who don't even know you, 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 you hop in a bus and you sit down and they get up and walk away from you because you sat beside them, you know. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just horrific. And, um, yeah. So sadly, I, you know, the love that I do feel is, is a spiritual love from God that, you know, affirms me and my wholeness and uh, as, uh, uh, as a, a child of God, that's the closest I've got to feeling that love. Um, but in society, no, I haven't uh, had that, that, that feeling. It must be wonderful, but um, yeah. Maybe one day. Yeah. Yeah. Let me follow up with a similar question and see if it evokes the same answer mm. or a different answer. And either way is fine, Anne. But is there a place or a person where you feel at home? And the way I would measure feeling at home is you are you feel connected to your creator. You feel connected to yourself. And I think most importantly, based on what you've been saying, your armor is off. You don't need protection. You can be vulnerable and free. Is there a, a geographic location or a relationship that comes to mind that that evokes for you? No. Um, they're fleeting moments when I can take my armor off. And, you know, my home is my sanctuary. And, um, no. you know, that'll be the only time when I can relax and, and uh, feel safe. Uh, on my country is another place when I'm at home on my own land, um, feeling the, the presence of the Creator and my ancestors. But outside of that, every day, um, you know, sometimes when I go to, you know, different churches, I, I think, you know, this is a place where I should feel safe. And uh, sometimes, you know, I go in unprepared and, um, and I'm vulnerable and um, I experience, you know, incredible racism and, and misogyny, you know, and um, I'm taken back uh, because, you know, this should be the one place where I should feel safe. But sadly, it's not. It's where I'm, you know, mostly under attack. And... Um, so I've learned over the years to continually wear armour uh, because I don't feel safe. And uh, like you said, you know, a lot of uh, African-Americans uh, have said to you, you know, we've got to put on a face. Well, we're constantly having to present ourselves in a way that appeases uh, white folk, you know, and other white folk. And uh, I can't talk a lot about my work and what I've, you know, how God has blessed me. Um, in the work that I've done because then my people get jealous and, and envious, um, not realising there's been a cost to all that I've done as well. So, you know, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, but uh, it's a it's a mm. very narrow line in which we walk. Mm. Mm. Dr. Anne Patel-Gray, uh, a few of her books for those of you who want to chase her more, The Great White Flood, Racism in Australia. Uh, also, uh, through Aboriginal eyes, the cry from the wilderness. I think if that would be my recommendation of the of the first book to try, and then Aboriginal spirituality, past, present, and future. These are not the only works that Anne has written. She is an academic. She is a PhD doctor. She's one of Australia's leading voices in the very topic we've talked about. And uh, all I can say is just. Um, Just how profoundly grateful I am for you. Um, you have been necessary in my faith journey. So I just want to thank you for putting yourself out there, for putting your whole self out there 
I know it cost you more than I can imagine, but um, you've been a gift to me. When I was home in Perth just a few weeks ago, there were a number of us chatting about your work and your impact on our life. So thank you for coming on this show and being willing to share yourself uh, with my audience. I just greatly appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, Steve. And, and may God continue to bless you and, and open you to, uh, you know, new learnings, new teachings and growth. And, um, you know, perhaps soon we'll uh, meet somewhere face to face. I am going to be looking at coming to the US in the near future. Um, and uh, perhaps I should reach out to you and let you know when that's going to happen and we could meet up. Uh, Colorado is one place and my daughter, I have a foster daughter who would love to experience a white Christmas. So we were thinking of going to Colorado and um, uh, having Christmas there, uh, maybe going up the Rocky Mountains, we'll, we'll see. Well, our home is yours when you come, and we live an hour and 20 minutes from the Rockies, so we can mm. certainly help you out there. Oh, blessings. Thank you.